0: Okay, you slide to the right a little bit so I'm on camera and see if I can mess your thing up. So we should have just a few seconds here. Lisa, do I look (laughs) alright?
1: Yeah.
0: Welcome to the Sirius Security Seminar at Purdue University. Today's presenter is Mr. Randall Brooks. Randall is a Raytheon, uh, a fellow, an engineering fellow at Raytheon, and is also a Purdue graduate. Welcome. Right. Thank you. So today I'm here to talk to you about cloud security and software assurance. So we're going to kind of intermix the two concepts and think about, you know, cloud uh, environments, how we're deploying lots of apps, web apps, or other Uh, even mobile applications to the cloud we also still need to consider about software assurance so I know all all you guys are here at Purdue so you're learning a lot about uh, information assurance in cybersecurity and things like that so there's going to be a intermix really of the tech the talk with which covering you know software assurance and the cloud so mixing those together so just quick uh, agenda, I'm going to give you an overview about software assurance, we're going to get into that a little bit. We're going to talk about uh, component risk and start to break down various criticalities of systems with respect to cloud environments and then uh, really look at a system development lifecycle and break down some certain touch points and some things in which we'll do doing an SDLC that will really help, uh, help the building security into an application. And then I'm going to go through a little uh, detailed example and then we'll have a little bit of time for Q&A. Uh, so kind of the general, you know, what this is all about is, you know, I, I once stepped through a talk and uh, the individual giving the keynote said the very last time you have full control of your software is right before you release it. Once you release it, you've put it out in the world, now the hackers have time to really go and pound upon that. So when you look at cloud applications, you look at um, you know, various different types. You really have your own private cloud. A lot of businesses and organizations would like to do that. Some of them have semi-private. They might have a, a partner company that they want to deal with. But a lot of times you'll hear about applications, a lot of things that which you guys use today, and lots of um, you know, apps that you get on the App Store or the Google Play Store. They are usually deployed in some cloud provider and really they're fully open. We, I kind of call it the wild, wild west. So it's really just right out there on the internet. So you're trusting your business application to be running out there. And really, you know, we have to look at a lot of different things to make sure that the hackers who have now an infinite amount of time to attack your application, uh, that that can, you know, that you really address things before they, you know, they get deployed. So this is the definition of um, of software assurance. So it was one of the few slides I will read just to make sure I get it perfectly correct. But software assurance is the level of confidence that software is free from vulnerabilities either intentionally or designed into the software or accidentally inserted during any time during the life cycle. And the software functions in its intended manner. And the really the key part on there is the, the part that's read the level of confidence that software is free from vulnerabilities. And there's a little bit another kind of emphasis that it is executing in in its really intended manner. And that's from the Committee of National uh, Security System, CNS uh, 4009 definition. There's a group I work with uh, quite frequently called the uh, DHS, uh, software and supply chain assurance group. There's a little link to their little super small font there, uh, buildsecurityin.uscert.gov. They kind of break down software assurance into three main categories. The conformance, uh, predictable execution, and trustworthiness. And conformance really looks at how does it conform against various different uh, requirements, other types of um, systems out there. there's like a rule or protocol? How does it conform to those types of uh, uh, systems? And then predictable execution, looking at um, you know, is it going to execute and, and, do, and operate in its intended manner? And then trustworthiness is really that it's free from the vulnerabilities that perhaps may exist in the application. So when we think about the cloud, how does conformance, predictable execution, and trustworthiness apply? Uh, <clears throat> With a cloud application, you might have a specific protocol in which you are going to interact with another back-end system. So whatever that is, you've got to make sure that you conform to that protocol and operate uh, such that you don't affect or bring down another system. Uh, predictable execution, you know, when you execute every single time, you want a certain value or a certain transaction is going to happen, and you want to make sure that that happens every single time exactly the same way. If someone kind of violates the integrity of that, then perhaps you could bring down the whole system. And then uh, trustworthiness, uh, you know, are is there any vulnerabilities, is there any and is there any vulnerabilities in your system or in any other system in which you are going to interact in the cloud and in particular cloud environments. So looking at software assurance kind of just in general we kind of intermix the term secure coding or application security all kind of mixed under the, the, the larger umbrella. And one of the things uh, we've kind of noticed out throughout the course of the years is that still with respect to secure development life cycles it's really not used as much as one might think and there's a little note down there um, that only 76 percent of U.S. developers use a secure application development process. Uh, Microsoft is really big in pushing their secure development life cycle. We'll talk a little bit more about those types of things uh, later. But we find that people just write code, release it, and then patch and patch and patch and patch perpetually. They don't really think about all of the different touch points within an SDLC that you'd have to deal with. And then with respect to cloud, now it's out there. It's something you're interacting with. It's very open. How do you, you know, make sure that you're developing that securely? So this is a little article from back in... um, back in July and what we've noticed is is that other countries really have kind of jumped in on this. They are building security into their life cycle, they're thinking about these types of things and we really haven't, we've noticed that it really hasn't kind of been very prevalent across companies in the United States. So it's kind of gotten the attention of the federal government. They pay for a lot of application development, they'd really like for these particular items to be secure. And they'd also really like to move some of these applications to the cloud. So when they do that, uh, you know we're looking at something like the FSMA. The FISMA now has added requirements to test and look at various different software assurance um, pertinent in, uh, items as you go through the FSMA reporting. And really, the key ones, and we're going to talk about uh, a lot later, is uh, co- testing for common weakness and enumerations uh, Doing static code analysis manual code reviews uh, there is a there's something called a common weakness scoring system which is a way of scoring weaknesses in code and then the common attack patterns in enumeration and classification um, thinking about ways in which systems can be attacked. Uh, and then doing uh, testing with dynamic code analysis, um, pen testing, or fuzzing applications. So the government is now really starting to think about this and they're starting to require this in assessments as they, uh, as you kind of go forth with respect to FISMA reporting. The federal government has also come up with uh, something called the FedRAMP, and the FedRAMP is really focused on uh, moving your application to the cloud. And it really breaks it down into security assessments and testing various different um, applications for various FISMA standards. Uh, there is a little um, the the baseline set of uh, requirements is still based on NIST 853. Uh, if you guys aren't familiar with the NIST uh, Special Pub 800, definitely look at those series of documents. I'm going to show uh, quite a few other examples about some of the NIST documentation that's out there but it provides good guidance, a set of controls that can be used across uh, not just the federal government but any kind of business or organization looking to uh, deploy secure solutions. The uh, FedRAMP also has um, an authorization so you have to be uh, approved to as a FedRAMP approved uh, system uh, to operate your uh, system in the cloud so if you're a platform as a service or software sh- service or infrastructure as a service provider they'll there's a way of looking at those providers and testing them to make sure that the that a third-party organization will take a look at them and make sure that they are uh, approved to go and 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 run that system and then of course they're really starting to more look at ongoing assessments so thinking about things as they go on not just setting out and putting it out there and say hey it's perfect let's go run it but then periodically taking a look at it and then assessing it and then going fix fixing it uh, over and over so here's a list of uh, there's quite a few NIST documentation uh, that is currently out there today with respect to cloud security and uh, here's, a, here's just a, a couple, the NIST uh, special pub 500, uh, 290, uh, 291 and 292 with standards and roadmap. Um, there's a, a three volume part with uh, the 293 uh, focusing on <clears throat> uh, cloud, secu- uh, cloud ad- adoption uh, and then uh, useful information for early, for cloud adopters, and then um, other deployment decisions. And then they're working on the NIST, the actual NIST 800-144, which is the guidelines um, for security and privacy in cloud uh, computing. And so a lot of times you actually will see some of the privacy aspects start to come in the cloud because now a lot of applications will start to tie things to what people have rights to do and uh, that kind of starts to bring privacy into the mix. Uh, the International Standards uh, Organization has also looked at various different cloud uh, requirements. Uh, the NIST, uh, I'm sorry, the I, there's the ISO 27.017 uh, really focusing on uh, controls for cloud applications, and then uh, 27018 focusing on uh, personal identifiable information in cloud applications. Uh, The one I I should have put on here, there is a set of, and these two items are in draft, there is a set of other draft documents on the area of application security. It's 27034. Uh, I'm actually Raytheon's uh, representative to uh, the standards bodies and organizations so we vote on ISO standards and there's a now up to I think it's a seven part it went from five parts to seven parts most recently with respect to application security and uh, those are currently under development and that's 27034 uh, uh, for application security. So we're going to talk about component risk and criticality so when we look at uh, cloud in, uh, systems, we really start to want to start to decompose those and look at the interacting systems. So it tends to be a system interacting with another system. You might have a web server interacting with a back-end database or some other type of um, uh, identity management or some other type of component. And as these systems interact, uh, you're going to find various different um, Vectors are that could potentially be exploitable in your application. So what you're going to be doing is decomposing those systems uh, into their most lowest component. Um, <clears throat> and as you, you know, as you get into the lowest, the various l- components in which you can then start to associate either weaknesses or vulnerabilities in each individual component, you'll start to look at the likelihood that those vulnerabilities could. Uh, could be exploited and then perhaps is there a means to exploit and then a presence of a th- threat actor uh, there's of course lots of threat actors out there you know going after various different um, cloud-based applications that are deployed out on the internet so it really depends on how much of you are of a target is there a means in which for them to be able to launch that attack against you and then if that impact should occur what really is the the what bad thing is going to happen? And I once sat through a, a talk where uh, an individual had a problem with a, um, a a service that they had deployed. It was a banking service, and the IT group said, "Oh no, we have an SQL injection." And I'll cover SQL injections a little bit uh, a little bit later. And and so the vice president in charge of that business area said, so OK. And he started going through some of these different types of things. You know, so what's the likelihood of this happening? They're like, well, it's, it's pretty low. You know, It took an outside um, pen tester many weeks to find this problem. We said, well, how long is it going to take to fix it? And he's like, well, we can have it fixed on Monday. We want to take the system down right now and go and make sure that we don't have this problem. And he said, OK, well, wait a minute. Um, how long, uh, so we're going to be down for the weekend, how much money is that going to lo- lose us? And I think it was something like $10, $20 million uh, in actual lost revenue by that service going down, and that was really a big deal. And so he said, well, um, what is the impact if something like this actually happens? And they said, well, it'll be about $8 million. He said, keep the system up, we'll live with it. But fix it as, as soon as possible, and that was kind of the decision in which they had to make. And so they really had to weigh that risk against that particular component as it was deployed in the in the web. And it had a a vulnerability that could have been exploited, just uh, only that pen tester knew about it. So um, I never did find out, I, if, you know how well that the fix went, because is really pretty hard to to upgrade things you know in the midst of operation and something that's used that much so So, you know when you get each one of those different components you apply a different risk uh, profile to every single one of those components so this one particular thing is more important than that particular thing and so it helps you organize and choose things in which you're going to fix at various different times and so you really kind of have this balancing you know we're going to meet we're going to meet cost and schedule uh, but we're going to provide the right kind of uh, security and testing for those types of things. So we're doing this kind of top-down decomposition risk assessment and really um, thinking about this in a complex environment. Because in a cloud, uh, there are things that are a little bit more important than others, uh, where we always talk about confidentiality, integrity, and availability. And some of the one I think is always really thought, forgot about is availability. And for cloud applications, availability is perhaps the number one thing. It's got to be up. So in the banking example, if that system was down, that cost them millions upon millions of dollars where they were concerned about the integrity of the data or other types of things. Perhaps that availability was more important to them. So now we're going to talk about uh, a system development lifecycle and really some security design principles in each one of those uh, each one of the touch points in that in that. So this is a little diagram I've drawn. It's kind of it summarizes uh, the NIST uh, special pub 864 entitled the security considerations in a system development lifecycle. And I have this little kind of thing out here to the side training because I usually consider training the, the first thing in which an individual will do. Uh, It's number one. You can't just have people go in and just start writing code, just start implementing and deploying without really thinking about, uh, you know, security considerations. You guys are going to produce, so that's, that's step number one and make you very valuable as you, you know, go out to look for jobs. Uh, but you know you're going to start in this blue part here you're going to have kind of initiation development acquisition and then uh, there's various different things you'll do and I'll talk a little bit about each one of these as we go on and then you'll have implementation and assessment so you're going to start to really test things and then once it's out there you're going to have the operations maintenance and disposal issues to deal with and you'll see this little thing I always kind of put at the bottom third-party reviews third-party reviews are always important as you go through each different step, because you don't want to test things with your own little blinders on. So with respect to training, uh, we kind of recommend, hey, everyone, at least know that there's something called software assurance. Whether you call it application security or what have you, know it's out there. It's not just cybersecurity isn't just did I patch my Windows box. It is I wrote a piece of software. Can something bad happen to that piece of software? what about the hardware? You know, how does that play into that? Maybe I re- I have a driver to something that could go wrong. So, you know, just getting people aware of software assurance that it's out there is, is of, of great importance. And in fact, it's gotten the attention of Congress. If you ever heard of something called the National Defense Authorization Act, it's what approves uh, kind of the Department of Defense uh, fiscally every year. There are they're now starting to see every year something about software assurance. Uh, there's even one for the draft of 2014, uh, which I didn't include in here. But um, they're starting to be, they're starting to think about that even for next year. Uh, software assurance is becoming a big topic uh, in the in the government and other um, communities. Now, secure coding. Um, you know, have a secure coding standard. Uh, train people on how to how you would like your application developed secure. There is the CERT C uh, secure so, uh, secure coding standard by uh, it's put out by Carnegie Mellon, and um, and you know and have train folks on how to avoid various different mistakes. And I'm going to show examples of some really bad mistakes uh, up coming up soon. There is a, a certification. I have this certification by ISC Squared. Uh, ISC Squared puts out a lot of different uh, search. You've probably seen a lot of people come forth uh, with CISSP, uh, probably pretty much most everyone who probably talks here probably has that certification. Uh, they also make another one called the Certified Secure Lifecycle Professional and it has um, eight. It has a eight common body of knowledge and what it does is it covers general concepts, it covers each different portion of the SDLC and, uh, you know, goes on uh, in that. Uh, Certified Ethical Hacker, we also recommend it, you know, you start to hack your own stuff. Uh, That's always kind of nice to do. And then with respect to cloud, they have the cloud security, a certificate for cloud security knowledge. And one of the domains specifically, number 10, is called application security. And so I'm gonna do a little bit of touch points on what they have there in in that uh, talk, talk layer. A group uh, kind of working on as you start to then go design your system so you train people and say okay now I'm going to design it. Another group that's been working very heavily in this uh, area and kind of helping people think about secure Uh, design principles is uh, SafeCode, so it's safecode.org, and there's a little list there. SafeCode also, with respect to training, is starting to come out with uh, some training modules that will be, I think they're out or will be released very soon, that will help people think about some of these different um, principles, and I know a lot of them uh, really have been probably covered here, Uh, least privilege, you know, uh, doing lots of you know, secure coding practices, something we actually just talked about. One very big one is validating input and output uh, to mitigate common vulnerabilities. And I'm going to um, cover an example later uh, that um, kind of focuses on um, concatenating um, strings in a dynamic SQL injection, but yet not validating the input and looking at the output, and that causes lots of fun and bad problems. Microsoft, uh, who puts out their own secure, uh, their, uh, secure development lifecycle, their SDL, has come up with a way of thinking about threat modeling. And we always recommend threat modeling as you're putting your system together. Uh, it's something you can do. You can draw a system in UML and think about how different components interact with each other, and they have this... Um, a mechanism called stride uh, spoofing uh, tampering with data repudiation information disclosure denial of service and elevation of privilege they have a, uh, an add-on to Microsoft Visio that will help you draw out your system and then ask you a lot of different questions so here's a couple examples uh, on the question you know can the software or end user be tricked into um, seeing data as something other than what is actually is uh, so you know spoofing something and let's it asks you lots of different questions so as you draw things out it then starts to rate you on how well you've ra- responded and create mitigations for each uh, problem that perhaps it could help folks you know, think about <clears throat> So, um, so if you think about your own you know digital neighborhood this is uh, infrastructure as a service so you deployed your application and then I'll also say that you're kind of the pinky-ish one because I think that's the color it's coming up up here uh, so your cloud uh, so you have your cloud application running on someone else's hosted system out whoever it may be and you're also sitting there next to some other individuals what if they got taken over what if perhaps those guys exploited some, Perhaps maybe unknown or ODA vulnerability in the underlying host end operating system is there a way for them to hop out of that virtual machine into that hosted oper- uh, the host operating system and then somehow mitigate the execution of your application? Perhaps they start to tarpit you, make you run really slow, or just turn you off entirely. That could uh, really affect your application so it's something to th- consider with respect to um, a deployment of an application in a cloud so and this one is a privilege escalation so you're really kind of popping out of that so um, <clears throat> that's one of the uh, items on stride is the exhalation of privilege so I kind of got out of that particular that other virtual machine and now I'm able to uh, now mediate other systems so how how do I protect against that what can be done and it's you know gets you long conversations with your provider to make sure that they're protecting you from various different things and it 's uh, definitely a worry uh, for many cloud um, applications so the cloud security Alliance is a, a group that I also work with uh, they <coughs> they list the following top threats and uh, uh, you know, insecure um, cloud software is really kind of what we've been really focusing on um, and there's lots of other different problems data leakage um, other um, cloud specific problems but um, in you know really insecure cloud software is really becoming a key aspect and we kind of consider that as a big software assurance problem so uh, chapter 10 of their uh, or domain 10 of the CCSK entitled application security uh, covers uh, entitle, uh, identity entitlement, access management, or idea and it really kind of starts to plan out how would you like things to uh, to be authenticated or so maybe perhaps you're going to use uh, Google Authenticator or some other kind of outsource uh, service to do those types of things and think about how would you like access management to work in your application uh, think about all of your SDLC, uh, which is what kind of things we 're talking about here, the differences between the software assurance, the platform assurance the infrastructure as a st- service how do how does that affect how you deploy? It? so we talked a little bit about uh, the uh, the infrastructure, but it might have been a little bit better for your application if you were the only one on that application on that particular hosted box, so if you wanted to go out and spend that extra money and own that. Whole entire execution of whatever that box is, perhaps then with redundancy, that might have been something you'd rather do than deploy it um, in another fashion. <clears throat> and then, um, you know, when you're going to go test various different things, so do vulnerability testing, it's really hard to test uh, software as a sh- as a service. So software is a service where you're really using someone else's written code. You're providing your data, maybe perhaps you're slapping your logo up there, but you're not, you didn't really perhaps write it. It, You're using someone else's different pieces of software that they wrote. So it's really difficult then to say, hey I'm gonna do a vulnerability assessment on that, I'm gonna pen test it. It's something someone else wrote, but perhaps on the other items perhaps you can. And then um, you know, monitoring of applications, what kind of logs are you going to do, and then developing an entitlement matrix where you kind of lay out who has access to what, access, deny, and so forth. So static and dynamic anal- uh, testing, so it sometimes is referred to SAST and DAST, really are very key with respect to software assurance. And uh, <clears throat> we're going to get into each one of these individuals, so I'll go ahead and move on. So static analysis testing, and this is uh, purposely written, really bad code, where it says, I don't comment. It takes an input directly from the the user and then has a little character uh, uh, array where they're allowing any arbitrary input in that. And so when you test your applications, you wrote this and say, hey, I wrote my code. I wrote this really fast. No big deal. I didn't comment. No one cares. But when you run static analysis testing tools, it should say, uh, and this is a common weakness in numeration uh, number 120, which is a buffer overflow without checking uh, the size of input, the classic buffer overflow. So you know, considering that you know, you need to test your software, and then <clears throat> and then um, there are then you'll find tons of tons of different problems and so what we tend to do is say okay you've you scanned your code, you found tons of different problems, you're going to then go back and look at your problems and rank them and so there's something called the Common Weakness Risk Analysis Framework, CWRAF, that helps folks prioritize weaknesses they find in their code. So I usually find people that scan their code and they say oh my gosh I have thousands and thousands of STIR copies as we call them and they have various different other things but perhaps there's portions in their code where the stir copy isn't accessible so maybe it's not as a big deal. In this particular example we have a one-way hash without a salt so a lot of people sewer passwords by doing a message digest right over the password. Well it's really better if you salt that message digest. That's a problem. We're gonna go fix it but perhaps we have a bunch of double freeze so we're gonna free memory and free memory again that might actually call my application to crash. So my application crashes, it goes down. That's a bigger priority for me. <clears throat> Shall I just explain that one right there? Let's that. So, DAST, so when you do dynamic um, testing, you really start to focus on uh, look at the attack surface uh, of the system. So when you looked at the system in threat modeling and you did your UML diagrams, you've you've you provide. You did stride against it. You're going to say, you know, I'm really going to take a look at this particular um, input right there. I'm going to fuzz that input and provide a, lots of different ver- um, inputs into it. And I'll cover fuzzing a little bit more in a second. And then really look for exploitable vulnerabilities. And then here we, you know, we have the example of um, the classic buffer overflow. Um, you know that. Um, that really can start to have your application do unexpected uh, behavior, and so you want to try that and make that buffer overflow happen in dynamic, um, in DAST testing. So when you do, um, when you are looking at things, what we point tell people to take a look at is what is commonly referred to as the SAN CWE top 25 uh, most dangerous programming errors. This does include both web apps and uh, just classic application development. Uh, So a lot of times we find folks that take a web application and then they yet deploy it and then call it a cloud application by by just putting it out there for everyone else to use or they develop a uh, front end for it um, on a iPhone or something like that so you can get it from the App Store. This is a listing that we tend to f- tell people to take a look at. Uh, when I just talked about the Common uh, Risk Analysis Framework, uh, it, we, we tell people to do that to kind of develop your own top 25. So develop your top 25 that's most pertinent to your application. Also of course is the, uh, o- uh, the OWASP group, the Open Web Application Security Project. They just came out with a brand new uh, listing this year. Their number one is Injection. Um, And uh, so they kind of reorganized that. So you'll see Injection, Cross-Site Scripting, uh, Cross-Site Request Forgery. So they also um, update this every so many years. And it's a very good place to look for if you are looking to prioritize things to test for with respect to even Uh, cloud applications because a lot of we find a lot of uh, web problems are also applicable to the cloud. Now the biggest one uh, that we tend to find is usually SQL injections so OWASP uh, has that is the uh, they're basically number one injection or improper neutralization of special elements used in the SQL command or SQL injection and that's the CWE number uh, eighty, eighty-nine. So uh, that's really one of the biggest problems that we've noticed and seen Um, you know doing dynamic or DAS testing can help people try various different ways to trip off and cause those SQL injections to happen and so we always recommend folks uh, try that. And then I mentioned a little bit earlier about that whole third-party assessment. Uh, You might test it but perhaps you don't have what we usually typically call the think evil gene, which I have like down there. Uh, so one thing can lead to another. So maybe you just try the first thing and say, okay, well, it didn't work. Well, one say, well, I got a little bit of nugget here. And that little thing led me to something else. And go always, don't just sit in your little, in your cubicle and write your code and say, oh, okay, I scanned it with my, my static analysis tool and it says I did great, wonderful. And then I, I, punched in a bunch of stuff on the keyboard and it didn't crash, so I go and deploy it. You really want someone else to come out and take a look at it and to think about uh, other ways to look at your application and so the whole third-party assessment is really key. They, They will probably actually do what this very next one is, which is fuzzing. They'll try every single possible combination and attack the system and provide tricked out, malformed input. Uh, usually it conforms to the protocol, so whatever the protocol is, it usually matches that because you don't want to send something that the system will reject. Uh, so if you insert various different character strings or other types of um, injection um, problems, then perhaps you might cause some of those buffer overflows, some of those other things to happen. Uh, the <coughs> the uh, Cloud Security Alliance um, actually publishes another uh, item out there called the GRC stack, so Governance Risk Management and Compliance stack, and they focus on really four main categories, the cloud audit, the cloud controls matrix, and the cloud assessment initiative, and a cloud trust protocol. The one that we really would like to highlight is the crowd control matrix. I talked a little bit about the NIST um, 800 um, special, the, some of the NIST documents. The version 3 of the Cloud Control Matrix has a laundry list of different um, controls that you can put on your application that will help mitigate some of the problems, even in deployed software, that may have these vulnerabilities and weaknesses. So we get into maintenance and disposal. We're going to get rid of the system. Uh, we really need to think about uh, data spills, or perhaps it dumps information out. Uh, do some incident response. Uh, you're always going to be doing configuration management. You, you know, obviously you get you turn on your iPhone every single day, and there's a new update to some app. It's kind of the same thing. Uh, you'll get uh, various different patch management things going on uh, and then doing that vulnerability assessments. We had I actually had talked about you know third party assessments. Once it's deployed, you still want to maintain it, test it as time goes on. So even if you deployed what you think is absolutely the most secure system, you've got it out in the cloud, it's running. There could be some some new hack that came out at DEFCON that perhaps a bunch of hackers jumped on and said, hey, I'm going to take a look at that. And perhaps now you're, you're, you're now more weaker to your application a little bit more weak because that particular uh, exploit has been released. And then, of course, doing various different security metrics. So one of the questions we always get asked is, well, how much does a software assurance thing cost? Uh, we tend to say yes, it costs, costs some money, it, you'd have to think about a lot of things, you have to do a lot of prep, you're going to build security into your application, but your name perhaps isn't going to be on the front page as the person who caused all these vulnerabilities on whatever application, so um, you know, you, you have to kind of start to think about that, and keep metrics on how many vulnerabilities it is, how long does it take me to, repl- to fix those types of things, and, uh, and so forth. So I'm going to end really quick here with a little example. Uh, I did this based off of some information that I had. I was working with a guy who comes. I had a lot of problem with my. Uh, I live in Florida, which is very cold here, but in uh, Florida is very hot, and so the, our heat pump kept going out. So the guy kept coming over, and he started. And he, first time I saw him, he had a netbook running Windows XP, and he took he took and tethered his BlackBerry and dialed up to the internet and was trying to bill me and then to do so he had to take a carbon copy of my credit card so he put it in there and had a nice little laminate and You, and you guys have seen this back back in the day you do that kind of maneuver there and it's about 15 minutes to check out i mean it's like, it took forever right so you know they're starting to move forward and they wanted to Uh, move their application, you know, to something a little bit more cloud. So they want to have internet access, they want to deploy and get billing really fast. Uh, You know, you can do the whole square now, swipe people's cards. Uh, So they'd look at Windows Phone applications, so Windows Phone 8. So this is an example of a Windows Phone Phone 8. Um, Carrier was T-Mobile in this particular case, uh, which they were trying to use. so this is a simple web application written in C-sharp and it's a little bit slightly modified more for example purposes. Uh, this basically allows for a text input with no data validation at all. It just takes whatever it is and runs. So this little picture of the application, um, you know, we're going to look at with respect to specifically specific we'll show example of an SQL uh, query because SQL to be one of the dominant languages out there used for a lot of the cloud applications to connect to the back end. So in this particular case, we're going to do a query. We're going to insert a name and the credit card into um, into the query form. So I'm going to take a look at that, and we're going to insert a uh, Homer Simpson, and Homer Simpson's credit card is one two three four five six seven eight nine zero. And uh, you'll have so you'd have a, basically insert. Um, SQL call that would look something along that line. So what we ended up doing is say, well, we're not going to do that. Instead, we're going to uh, put 1 as the, um, the card, and we're going to add this additional part, which is exec xp command shell delete star dot store star, and run that. So you get a nice little thing that says, are you sure you want to delete uh, the F drive in this particular case, <laughs> which we didn't do. So what just happened, we used the double dash to comment out everything in there, so it might have looked like I wrote some really good code, but someone came in and basically commented all that out and then ran a command shell that ran the command delete star dot star, which is really bad on a Windows box. Uh, so uh, we looked at, you know, a couple of things. Basically none of the other uh, inputs were uh, basically there was no validation on anything so this was select star from basically we basically dropped their entire table so other so other fun getting the price list and so what it had in here was here's all the prices and it shows like various quantities whether it was on the truck what the price was and what the customer price was which is so you know you could just buy the product. Actually, I found out that the problem I had was just a solenoid thing that I could have bought for like $100, but I think I had paid like 250 for it, for him to literally unscrew four things, plug in what looked like a battery, screw it back on, and then wait 15 minutes for him to <laughs> to charge it out. And uh, so we were taking a look at it. So it was really kind of a fun little experiment in it in, uh, along that line. So that is it. Uh, so you guys have any questions?
1: Could um, elaborate on the thing of the uh, the auditing because now if an organization <coughs> uses a cloud, then the scope of the audit uh, would expand to the cloud as well
0: oh, could you say that one more time okay, so you hiding. mentioned
1: yeah auditing right yeah. because now if an organization uses the cloud, uh, if somebody has to do an audit of the organization, do they need also to audit the cloud provider
0: they, they do well, um, and okay. the um, the the FedRAMP process yeah. is really all really kind of all about that. There's something called a three pow a third party auditing uh, organization, if I remember co- correctly. Uh, there are very few uh, approved uh, service providers for cloud, and so yeah, that's an important thing. You do have to look at your um, cloud service provider, and and that's why I we really talked about really third party assessments because you wanna you wanna make sure that what you're testing. So we're gonna do a pen test on the you want to make sure that they could handle it. So what if um, you have someone doing infrastructure as a service and you're going to do a pen test, you actually would like for them to say what's going on? Why is someone fuzzing your application? Uh, and we're like okay we're doing it. Um, yeah, it auditing the, the cloud provider is extremely of extreme yeah, importance. But,
1: but the point that would be that then uh, you know one would need to look also which are the applications. So in theory for me to feel more secure, I would like to know which are the other customers yeah. <laughs> which I have run on the yeah. same cloud where my stuff is I, I, running. I have
0: seen that question. I, I went to talk to Microsoft and their yeah. Azure and that was one of the questions they have, you know, who else am I running exactly. with? What if my neighbor yeah is a big target so what if I'm not? What if that guy is? Is there a way to know it? And their answer was they, they really didn't necessarily have a mechanism or way to say you're on a server that also is being served by someone who does something perhaps that is a big target and I'm seeing a lot more uh, attacks against this particular person, okay. and you happen to be on the same i haven 't really seen anyone really give that information no um, and that 's definitely something that people are concerned about yeah
1: but but there are cases which you know, are known by which this happened if somebody you who know, was not a target became involved in a security incident because uh, one of the other customers was attacked like uh,
0: right right uh, yeah, and that 's why I, I, I did try to put yeah. the um, the one where the elevation of okay. privilege where that other person had a problem. Yeah. So we were going to say, someone else's problem, you know, we didn't, we broke perfect code, right? Um, so, yeah, someone else had the problem, and but they were the ones who were targeted in this particular yeah. case, and whatever, whatever they might be, they were taken over, or maybe perhaps they were a target of denial of service. Well, that denial exactly. of service has affected my right. a slice time on that server, and so I'm not getting as the kind of service level agreement that perhaps I really wanted and uh, you know big big cloud providers do take a look at that type of thing and will move dynamically move things and kind of load so if, if one guy is really getting hammered then they'll start to move everything else over and give him more resource resources then
1: But then, uh, you know, this is very interesting and of course for denial of service you can do, there are a lot of techniques for doing load sharing, you know, people move jobs among machines. But when it comes to billing, because this will involve the cloud provider to have to spend a lot of resources to do that mm-hmm. what if the fault is in the application itself can they go back to that customer and tell them look because of your wrong application your lack um, of security I was in trouble with the rest of my customers I, mean, what's going to I happen? don't know that
0: would, that, I don't know that answer, the answer to that yeah. question but that was that's a good question I will ask someday when I'm in yeah. another uh, meeting with some of those other folks um, that's a very good one. I'll, I'll remember that. That's, yeah. that's a, funny, a funny thing. Uh, yeah, because we're really big on talking about build security in, test your software, do the best you can, you know, train your people, do the best you can, write good code, go put it out there. Don't be the guy that just writes the code and, pr- and just, just deploys it. Right? Doesn't do any testing, doesn't think about secure coding practices, doesn't build security into his life cycle. Don't be that guy. So we say do that, but I haven't heard. Okay, the guy you're on the server that's on the, with the guy who didn't. Yeah, I haven't heard that. Exactly,
1: that's the real problem because the real problem is that okay, we we do everything you know to be secure, but then we run with other guys who don't. So the question is, can we come up with techniques by which one can self-protecting his own application? in some way, you know.
0: Yeah, you might re- you write your own special yeah. protocol filter or something like your own kind of application yeah. level firewall specific for your app and require yeah. your uh, service provider to utilize it in some fashion, perhaps.
1: Okay. Yeah, could be interesting. Okay, I have a question. No. Okay. <laughs>
0: I'm sorry. Can you repeat that? Like, Did you use your uh, I want to know if they are quantitative records <laughs> metrics. Quantitative. Quantitative metrics. all the oh, cloud service. Oh, um, uh, well, for, uh, for quantitative uh, 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 metrics for cloud uh, security. Sometimes the
1: Quantitative. Um. S R E Service level.
0: Oh, well, SLAs. Yes. SLAs for um, for those. Uh, yeah, some um, that that depends on the cloud provider and what you pay for. I think if you paid for the most, then of course you you can get the most. Uh, sometimes the um, uh, I don't know if I have a perfect answer really for that particular one. I I could talk to you a little bit offline with um, if you want uh, about some of the specific vendors I've talked to. Uh, But I think that would be a question really for the the cloud security binders on what they, or cloud providers on what they do for SLAs. Um, But for uh, metrics on other types of things, we always like to say just assume it's 10%. So, how much does this cost? Uh, It's 10%. That's always a default answer. Uh, That's a generic answer, by the way. So, what is cybersecurity cost to this application? 10%. that's kind of a joke, by the way. So, um, but yeah, I'll, I'll, we could talk a little afterwards, and I'll, I'll I'll tell you what I what I know. But any other questions? I think we have like two minutes. So. We
1: have still the chance to ask questions.
0: All right. Well, thank you guys for attending. Yeah,